Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, the laureate of Columbia University. Joe, I want to cut right now. We're going to talk about what's going on right now. But Joe, I want to go back a small 40 years to Grossman Stiglitz. And in it, there is an equation, folks, which is the simplest equation in all of economics. U equals theta plus epsilon. Epsilon is the unobservable. It's what we can't see. Joe Stiglitz became acclaimed for this. Joe Stiglitz, have you ever seen an epsilon like right now? Have you ever seen the unobservable that we see in this pandemic? Uh, We've never seen uh, a shock uh, as big as we have. Uh, But the interesting thing is after the shock uh, has hit, uh, we can trace out some of the consequences. And what I find a little disappointing is that we haven't been doing that second round. The shock we could not have anticipated. Uh, we could have done a better response to it. So, Professor, this shock is what's unique about this shock versus what maybe some things we've experienced in the past. It is truly, truly global. <laughs> Does the response have to be global? Because right now it seems country by country, or even within the United States, state by state. Well, it has to be, you might say, both global and local. Uh, the local hospitals that are going to take care of people. But the fundamental fact is that we won't be able to control the pandemic until we control it everywhere. If it's raging in some part of the world and we don't yet have a vaccine and we don't have a retroviral, it'll come back to bite us. And that is what was so disappointing about uh, Trump's decision to hold up money on WHO. It's like uh, being upset about some fire department and... uh, Defunding the fire department in the middle of a yeah. fire. Yeah, Joe, what I find so distressing here is we've got Rogoff and Reinhardt publishing a brilliant essay the other day. And, you know, folks, I've never said this in my life. Rogoff and Stiglitz are on the same page. And, 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 and Joe, this is really critical. The urgency of the matter, and we've seen a central bank, and frankly, central banks, plural, matter, And the legislature, particularly in the United States, seems locked in almost, pardon the pun, a Lockean individual approach where society cannot collectively battle a viral pandemic. How do we get ourselves out of that? How do we extract ourselves from this forced individualism? Well, I think the hope is that we look around and see what's going on in other countries and take the lesson. You know, the IMF came out with this report yesterday, and one of the striking things to me in that was that the United States, it was way ahead of every other country in the uh, number of the fraction of unemployment, the unemployment rate. Uh, and ahead of every country in a very negative way. When they said, you know, let's make a number, U.S. number one, they didn't mean make U.S. number one in having the highest level of unemployment among all the advanced countries in response to the coronavirus. The other countries have figured it out and have figured out a way to make sure that there is less suffering 
fewer people are thrown out of their jobs. And what's so devastating in the United States is we are the one country where people depend on employment for health insurance in the middle of a health crisis. So the devastating effects in the United States of right. being unemployed are orders of magnitude worse than in other countries. Right. And, and then, Paul, I'm going to editorialize here. I'm talking my yep. own book, but it's companies like Bloomberg, and I'll mention Bank of America, Mr. Moynihan today, reemphasizing this is not the time to can people. Yeah, got, exactly. You've got to find a way to do this. Paul, pick it up, please. So, Professor, give us what we know about the U.S. fiscal stimulus response. What do you think the U.S. government should do next? I mean, the Fed seems to have really flexed its muscles, exercised many tools in the toolbox. What do you think the federal response should be going forward? Well, I think uh, there's actually a number of things that we need to do. Uh, some of them are relatively easy. There were some big gaps in our earlier measures. For instance, while we recognized how important it was for people to have paid sick leave, we don't want people with COVID-19 going into the workplace and spreading the disease. And so they passed a law. But what did they do then under the pressure of the big companies? Exempted 80% of American workers. So we recognize the principle, and then we totally undermine it. So that needs to be changed. Uh, we recognized the principle that we shouldn't have people. Uh, uh, we should keep the connection between we, people and their jobs. But then when we designed the program, uh, we designed it in a way that's not working very well. Uh, other countries have done uh, much better. And there's a bill in Congress to follow the model that the other countries uh, use, where the employer directly gets a check to pay his workers from the IRS or Social Security. We have all those, uh, uh, we have all the, the, the information we need. I mean, after all, the IRS is communicating with every corporation, right. and so they, they, they know how to communicate. So that's money that could go um, almost overnight. Now, why we didn't do it that way, I have no idea. Uh, and then we have some other big gaps. Uh, one of the uh, big issues is uh, we left out uh, the big uh, NGOs, the universities, our research institutions. And so some of the kinds of institutions that will be absolutely necessary for our revival as a strong economy uh, have not been supported. Well, they'll, they'll be along in another trunch. If you're just joining us, so it's Joseph Stiglitz with us of Columbia University. Joe, I want to talk about your Democratic Party. I know you voted Republican four or five <laughs> elections ago. But, Joe, I, I want to talk about the need for Democrats and particularly the visible East Coast Democrats that hang on every Joe Stiglitz in word. I, how do they get back to the middle ground? How does the vice president running against President Trump, how does your party, ex-convention, getting to November, how do they find their way back to Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson, and the middle Democratic Party ground? So my view is they need to focus on the basic principles, which are principles that 90%, you know, 60%, 70%, 80% of Americans support. Uh, most Americans, you know, in poll after poll show they think that $7.25 is not adequate as a minimum wage. They think uh, it's not a livable wage. We need to raise the minimum wage. Almost everybody says that 
the fact that the United States is the only advanced country that doesn't recognize the right to access to health care as a basic human right. We need to recognize that. And there are different ways of doing it. We need a good democratic debate about how to do it, but recognize that principle. Uh, the idea that people should be able to shoot other people, uh, that you should have, you know, we're not talking about rifles. Uh, we're talking about machine guns uh, that... Uh, the Fourth Amendment did not, uh, wasn't talking about everybody having the right to have machine guns. Uh, so some forms of gun control. I, I mean, uh, Joe, to stay on the, the pandemic now, you know, we all understand on gun control, it's about the Senate majority and the power and the rural nature of the Senate, etc. I mean, we all get that. On the pandemic and on the politics forward, do you see any nudging towards a more collective American psychology, or do we get done with the pandemic and we just move on as we've been moving on since, you know, 40 years ago? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that, because that is the essential issue. When we have a crisis, we realize that we need collective action, that our individualism can't work, and we turn to government. And here in New York, uh, Governor Cuomo has really done uh, a fantastic job under very difficult circumstances. Uh, so, uh, and and we see in states like uh, California the role of good leadership and the role of the state in being able to protect people and to get the the, uh, yeah. the pandemic under control. So, I think you know this is one of the themes of my book. Uh, people, power, and profits, progressive capitalism, uh, it's that we went too far in the extreme that markets were everything. We we need to get a better balance, a balance between now, recognizing markets are important, <clears throat> but so is collective action. We'll see. We'll see. Joe, yeah, we'll see. Just, well, Joe, just because of the clock, we got to leave it there. Joe Stiglitz, thank you so much for uh, joining us. The laureate from Columbia University, always controversial. We get a ton of response when Professor Stiglitz is on. We are committed here to speaking of medicine, and we do that across the wide sphere of this pandemic. We've talked to radiologists. We've talked to epidemiologists. Again, we speak to someone expert in emergency medicine. She's Lauren Sauer of Johns Hopkins University, their assistant professor, really just outside the pandemic, expert in this area. We caught up with her today. Here is Professor Sauer. I think it's a little too early to say whether it's fully cresting or not. We are seeing a slowdown in the number of increasing cases. We haven't, I don't think, peaked that curve yet, but we are starting to see slowdowns in the volume um, and all the more reason to protect those measures that are in place like social distancing to ensure that, that those volumes don't spike right back up as soon as right. they sort of quote-unquote go back to normal. Uh, Lauren, that is certainly what I see in the fancy exponential or logarithmic charts as well, exactly as you just described it. And so much of that is done on a moving average where professionals like you and unprofessionals like me or even the President of the United States have to use a number of days or weeks or months and blend it together to really see the ebb. How long is that moving average? What's the appropriate length of time for you to gauge? Well, I think 
um, it's changing every day. And I think we're just starting to learn more information about this virus and how it behaves in people. Um, the, the key is not to make an assumption way too early, right? So um, two weeks is really the minimum to even start to understand the data. For, you you want to look at it two weeks out. So <coughs> I think we're, we're several months before we really can go back to um, or go towards planning to reopen and, and go back to normal. Lauren, how quickly will we get a, a vaccination against the pandemic? There's a lot of really good candidates coming up right now. Um, I think we're, we're seeing estimates from those scientists somewhere between um, three and 12 months, which is unbelievable for vaccine science. It's really fast. And so it's exciting to see all this progress being made. I think realistically, a vaccine that's ready to go out to the general public is about a year away. Um, but we could start seeing candidates that could be used to protect our frontline health workers and first responders earlier, probably. Uh, what's the biggest challenge right now? So there are a number of questions, Lauren, about, for example, asymptomatic <coughs> cases, right? Why are they asymptomatic? And, and until you find out more about them, it's very difficult to get a handle because they keep on transmitting if the lockdown is eased somewhat, but also immunity. How close are we to understanding whether people that have had it can go back safely to work? Yeah, there's a lot of work being done in that immunity question right now. And I think we have to, because we're so early in the outbreak, we have to wait to see how people's immune responses stay over time and also how um, when people are, are ready to go back to work without having symptoms. The, the biggest challenge right now I see is testing. We're still trying to ramp up testing in a meaningful way, and that is what every single other public health measure hinges <clears> on. All of those things that we want to use to get back to work, to, to <coughs> alleviate social distancing, to be able to travel, right. um, to reduce the mask use, they hinge on testing. Lord, very quickly here, thank you so much for bringing that up. What is the constraint on getting more testing done? I think it's it, it's a little bit of a supply issue and a lot of bit of a coordination issue. So making sure that the tests are in the right place, that people have the ability to scale up and test all the people they need to, um, that you continue to get the materials, and that you have the people to run the tests. Lauren Sauer with us, uh, with the Johns Hopkins University in emergency medicine, as we've been talking to people in nursing there, and also from the Bloomberg School of Public Health. We should, of course, mention that Mr. Bloomberg has provided immense philanthropy to Johns Hopkins for that School of Public Health. He's the founder and uh, owner of uh, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. have some turf under us. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, of course, others coming out, the super regionals and your community banks as well. Synthesizing this is Kenneth Leon. He is with CFRA, uh, head of research and also acutely focused on the financials. Uh, all in, I believe it's four shops right now, Ken Leon. What is the summary? The summary is shift to balance sheet, credit risk. Uh, there's only a few weeks of look into the the recession. So more work will be done for the second quarter in terms of reserves uh, for loan losses. Um, the question, though, always is how deep will this recession be and how long? Uh, I guess the public markets expect a, a recovery in the second half of this year. But banks are being prudent, which essentially means that they're building up reserves for non-performing loans. That's the good news, Ken, that they are ready, that this balance sheet is strong as City and elsewhere too. Here's what I'm trying to get my hands around, though, and maybe you can help us. When these guys say they're prepared, 
and when they come through with the huge credit provisions like the ones we've seen over the last couple of days, what are they prepared for? Another shutdown that lasts a month, two months, three months? Can you understand the duration that they're working with, their timeline, that enables them to decide how much money they need to put aside? What often happens is banks are ultra-conservative, which means they tend to reserve more than what will actually happen. It is likely that if it's a recovery later in 2020 for the economy, there could be a reverse of these reserves. But at this point, um, it's essentially the credit committees for these banks are being very, very conservative. Ken, I'm struck by the sort of dissonance. We're seeing the increase in credit loan loss provisions, which is deteriorating uh, some of the earnings potential. But Citigroup just reported its best fixed income trading revenue in eight years. And you're seeing this consistently across the big banks, that they are performing better when it comes to trading revenues. And I'm wondering, are people being too dismissive of this, of sort of the profit uh, winning aspect of a dislocation like this and the fact that the big banks have been in a position to take advantage of it. So the banks are serving clients and in the capital markets, trading has been strong, particularly, as you know, thick, um, and it's mostly investment grade as opposed to high yield or other derivatives. Uh, We're also seeing strength in equity trading with volatility. Uh, This shines much brighter for a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley as a percentage of their total net revenues than the large banks, which still have a sizable traditional loan business. And just sort of dissecting the other sort of lending functions of the banks, we're seeing that the increase in CNI lending and say Bank of America is really attributed to the drawdown on credit lines that we've been hearing a lot about. Will this ultimately be a pain point for the banks or a point of profit going forward into the, what will eventually be a recovery? So first of all, in terms of lines of credits and unrestricted lines, um, Companies are taking advantage of that. Uh, When we look at that and and also look at their loan exposure, um, we think there's risk in terms of commercial real estate and construction. Uh, The total lines of credit for the the four largest banks was just about $460 billion, four times greater than back in 2013. Um, So a lot of this will have in terms of how deep uh, this can be for credit losses will be in industries like real estate, uh, oil and gas. Goldman has taken a reserve, $937 million. And, um, you know, we really think it's really a question of getting people back to work uh, versus having unoccupied offices as well as other real estate uh, property types that could be at risk. City saying 80%, that number's just incredible, 80% for our listeners that might not have heard this, 80% of employers around the world, employees around the world working remotely at Citigroup, a phenomenal wow. stat. Wow. The path forward, Ken, I don't think we should be naive about this. I truly believe that these banks want to help their customers. Of course they do. Absolutely, of course they do. But I don't think we should be naive about the PR effort going on right now. None of these banks want to be seen laying off anybody in 2020. But they will want to cut costs again in 2021. And Ken, I'm just wondering, are we putting off this year's cost cuts for a huge effort next year? Well, it's a great question. And when you look at stakeholders, it's about serving the public, their employees. I don't think 
uh, investors really are looking at earnings for the next quarter as well. So when you get analytical about this with your efficiency <coughs> ratio, um, they're not going to be where the banks want well. to target is the mid-50% range. You know, that's another conversation in a better environment in 2021. Uh, but at this point, it's really serving customers and also um, due diligence in terms of non-performing loans. And Ken, to John's observation there, an 80% working from uh, home, great. What do the banks do that aren't digitally ready? I mean, has this crisis, this pandemic just brought to the forefront they're dead? Is that true? There's over 4,000 banks in the U.S., community banks, smaller banks, and some that still, Tom, might have passbooks. So if being digital... Ken, John Farrow and Lisa Bramwitz don't know what a passbook is. Okay, that's so far back. It and is, think, but, you know, we're talking community banks. <laughs> what are they, what are they going to do, Ken? Seriously, what are, what are the non-digital going to do? Their deposits are not going anywhere, and, and it's really a question of um, whether they were too aggressive in terms of loans. The regional banks have more concentrated industry exposure, some in oil and gas. But I think community banks will just slog along. And yeah. unlike the rest of the world, uh, the U.S. banking industry, number of banks is still too large, but the concentration of assets with banks greater than $250 billion is over 55% of the total industry. Ken, just real quick here, I'm wondering, uh, what's your recommendation on stocks? Do you think that they're a buy, or do you think that this is sort of indicating some serious caution and, and risk going forward? We didn't get this right, and we had buy recommendations on Bank of America, also on J.P. Morgan, and also Citigroup. And trading um, at low multiples of net tangible book value, forget about earnings, we would look for the banks probably to be market performers at best near term. But if there is an upturn in the economy, these are great cyclical stocks later this year. Ken? Good to catch up with you, as always. Ken Lee on there, CFRA (coughs) Director of Equity Research on a busy morning for bank earnings. Right now, folks, this is the conversation of the day. If you are part of Global Wall Street, and also, as John mentioned yesterday, if your retirement plan has been blown up, Uh, which is a few people as well. William Priest wrote a definitive book on free cash flow a number of years ago. It was my book of the summer one summer. It's called Free Cash Flow and Shareholder Yield, and it is a must-read. There's no other way uh, to move it. Uh, The rumor is the movie will be out next year, Memorial Day weekend, John Farrell playing uh, a part in it uh, as well. Bill Priest joins us now with Epic Investments. Bill Priest, one of the great foundations of your life work on free cash flow is share buybacks. They've disappeared. What does that do to the Priest mathematics? Well, thanks again, Tom. Uh, Actually, let's go back one step and just start with the fundamental statement. The value of any business is a function of its ability to generate cash flow. And we define cash flow uh, where we, we subtract from the operating cash flow of a business any planned capital expenditures and all cash taxes, which gives you 
free cash flow. And there are only five things you can do with a dollar free cash flow. You can pay a dividend, buy back stock, pay down debt, reinvest the money internally, or make an acquisition. If you can earn a return above your cost of capital, you should reinvest or acquire. It's the fastest way to grow shareholder value. That said, most companies cannot use all of their free cash flow internally. And as a result, they decide to return some of it back to the owners of the business. Now, you can pay down debt. That's not going to happen. You have a cash dividend and buybacks. And buybacks soared after the 08 uh, crisis. And I think you'll see that diminished. It doesn't mean that corporations are going to stop returning capital to the owners of the business, but the buyback methods will, will come down substantially. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of these things where people are going to have an attitude toward buybacks that are not going to be positive when they, visit, when they see suffering going on. That said, the corporation's job is to maximize the value of the business to the owners. So I think what you're going to see is a substantial diminishment of buybacks, but not necessarily cash dividends. Uh, cash dividends will be down this year for sure because they're going to be down. But depending on the company, you'll see some. Like yesterday, you had uh, P&G raise the dividend. The day before, I think you had Johnson Johnson raise their cash dividend. Cash dividends are okay. Yeah. The banks are a little different. The banks have this problem that in 08, they were viewed as the cause of the crisis. Depending on what country you lived in, uh, they were treated well or badly. In this country, they were treated rather well, and I think the populace generally feels they were treated too well. So this time around, I do think they have to take a more socially appropriate uh, attitude, and I don't think you'll see any buybacks by any U.S. banks this year. And, Bill, they seem to have confirmed this, uh, saying that basically uh, they're not going to engage in that. They're talking about the banks and sort of the loan loss provisions that we keep focusing on here. $24 billion set aside when you look at Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan so far for potential loan losses. And I'm just wondering, is there some sort of consensus that's emerging among the big banks in terms of the parameters of how deep this downturn is going to be that's instructive for other earnings going forward? Well, good. that's a very good question. And I think when you look at what's going on, it's unclear what the, what the ultimate unemployment number will be, but it's going to be substantial. Uh, we have roughly 150, we had, I should say, 155 million jobs in the United States. A 20% unemployment rate would be 30 million people. We're going to be at 20 pretty easily. And it, we will see the biggest unemployment number since since the end of World War II, really since the Depression. And I don't think it's going to prove uh, socially acceptable for any financial intermediary to, quote, do well or have their senior leadership do well when you have that level of unemployment. So I think you'll see very, very cautious statements with regarding dividends. And as we said earlier, just no buybacks at all. I think other companies, you've seen some people waive salaries in some parts of the world. Uh, I noticed they haven't waived bonuses, but they have waived salaries, that they won't take a salary during this, uh, this, this debacle. I think you'll hear more and more of that in the United States as well. It'll depend on the build-out. I mean, we have to reopen the economy. If we don't reopen the economy, it, it's going to be an absolute catastrophe. How we reopen it, it'll be, uh, uh, I think it'll start probably sooner than many people think, but there will be experimentation, and it will be a while before you get the economy fully opened up. Yeah. 
Bill, thanks so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Just a quick update there. Too short. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 